Hey everybody and welcome to the Health Tech Podcast where we talk about everything healthcare and technology. I'm your host, James Somaru, and this is your weekly Sunday session. Hey everybody, this week I'm joined by Elena Nadenova and she is a biomedical and AI engineer with a PhD in machine learning for healthcare innovation from Oxford University. She has been on a couple of times before, but for those of you that don't know, she's the CEO and co-founder of Febris, which is a company whose AI-powered platform enables carers and community health workers to detect health conditions early, and they are pushing this out in East London in care homes, in uh, slums in India, so they're helping community workers to, to diagnose patients and triage them so they know who's well and unwell, so doing incredible work all around the world. And Alina's on today to talk about a really interesting topic actually about remote monitoring and why has remote monitoring not become, I suppose, ubiquitous in healthcare? It's an interesting topic. Febris themselves are a remote monitoring company and they certainly have a view on this. They are saying they kind of represent the next generation of remote monitoring, which is actually geared up to make a real difference and be able to be scaled. But uh, anyway, Alina and I talk about why has remote monitoring failed in this episode. So I hope you enjoy it. So Alina, do you want to give us a recap as to who you are and what is Febris? Absolutely. So uh, my name is Elena Naidenova. I am the CEO and co-founder of Febris. Fundamentally, Febris exists because we believe that people should not be suffering or dying from preventable conditions. Sounds pretty trivial, but even in the 21st century, we have plenty of examples of people not having access to diagnosis and then suffering unnecessarily. Um, and we don't need to just look at the pandemic as an example. One million children die of pneumonia, regardless of COVID, uh, because they get diagnosed too late. So our kind of mission as a company is to enable the early diagnosis of conditions in community settings so that people can access treatment early and prevent all of this suffering. Um, we, we use modern day technologies such as digital health tools and AI, uh, but fundamentally, our innovation revolves around enabling decision-making. So equipping non-medics with the tools to be able to detect conditions so that we can task shift a lot of the diagnostic process away from hospitals. Nice. And you guys sent me, well, we talk all the time anyway, don't we, right? So we do indeed. one of the things that we were chatting about was remote monitoring itself. There's obviously loads of remote monitoring companies. There's loads of people trying to do this in various different ways. Continuous, not continuous, using this, using that. Um, algorithms left, right, and center. I mean, there's there's, lo- there's just loads going on in this space. But seemingly there's never been, in my eyes anyway, from my vantage point, that major breakthrough, that major kind of, ah, someone's just cracked it and it's now everywhere. Mm. And it's been around for a little while. And, you know, you guys being involved in it, not necessarily, you know, peddling it in the same way as everyone else per se. But yeah, you had some interesting, we had a very controversial statement in in our discussion, which is why I wanted to sort of stop the conversation then and bring it here. But um, tell me your thoughts on remote monitoring. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you asked this question because it's, it's a really interesting dichotomy because on the one hand, 
it feels like remote monitoring as a concept has been around for decades and it has. People have been trying to measure things in a home environment, in a community environment, and then send them to their doctor for a long, for a long time. Uh, there are different iterations of this, but pretty much revolves around the same concept. And the evidence just remains inconclusive. We've had plenty of randomized control trials. We've tried to measure the implications on cost, the implications on patient outcomes. And as you're saying, there isn't really one glowing example that we can point to that says, voila, we solved it. All these people are getting diagnosed early and we're saving all this money for the health system consistently at scale. Yeah. On the other hand, particularly living through a pandemic in 2021, it kind of seems inevitable that eventually we'll be able to identify what's happening with our own health at home before we feel really, really sick. Like this whole concept of, you know, using our mobile phone to identify a deterioration either in ourselves or in our loved ones, particularly in, if they're in a high risk group, just seems inevitable. <laughs> Sooner or later, someone needs to crack it. Um, so that's why I call it a dichotomy. And my personal opinion is that remote monitoring as it has been done in the past has failed and it's bound to continue failing until we do something very differently. Yeah. And that was the controversial statement, I suppose, that remote monitoring has failed. And I suppose that's because it hasn't had that big success, I guess, which you're right, seems dichotomous in the sense that on one hand, it hasn't worked at scale convincingly, but it does also seem inevitable and it seems strange. So one thing I think is in, would be good to talk about here would be, would be what you mentioned at the beginning, that the evidence remains inconclusive. I imagine that there are going to be people listening that would challenge you on that. And I know that you've done, well, you're an academic at heart, right? I mean, there's plenty of, uh, you know how to read a paper, certainly with, with the accolades that you have. And so I'm interested in your journey of doing that research. You know, I've done literature reviews for dissertations and, and all sorts of different, you know, I've, I've, I go on that journey a lot. And I, I know that when you enter that rabbit hole, you just end up, you know, papers and papers and papers and papers deep. And, but, but over time, you do get a view of a landscape. You mm. do get you, you you get an idea of what the big arguments are. You get an idea of what actually the most important, powerful papers are that, that are leaning the arguments one or another. So I'm interested in that. I suppose literature review that you've done on on that stuff and what that pulled out for you. Yeah, I mean, I would say I'm probably a researcher at heart and a business person <laughs> uh, just by circumstances, and because I believe that business is the way to realize innovation in the world. Um, but also as a company, I kind of profess this ethos that we are students of remote monitoring. For us to say what's working and not working, uh, that's only possible if we've really studied the evidence base. And also we've tried some of these steps and kind of can very specifically point to where failures happen and also have the curiosity and open mind to discuss failures openly. Um, so that, that, that's kind of the space we come from. I'm by no means professing that I'm an expert in remote monitoring, very happy to have debates and discussions on what works and what doesn't work in this space. Uh, but as you're saying, having done a lot of the kind of the studying of the evidence base, there are a couple of, there are a couple of highlights, basically. I'd say I'll start with one, which is the 
by definition, the concept is a little bit flawed. Like remote monitoring comes from software as a concept where you put sensors that are away from your main system and that allows you to kind of identify problems or check on your system remotely. Is that really what we want for our health system? Because the problem we have with health systems worldwide is that we do not have sufficient number of doctors, experts, clinical professionals to be checking on all of us, let alone all the time. So by definition, this concept is a little bit set for failure because we're never going to have sufficient people to be checking on the sensors to see if everything is okay. So that, that's kind of point one, uh, which I would say by definition is unfortunately going in the wrong direction. Then looking at the evidence base, the really kind of glaring failure that's really uncomfortable to talk about, particularly for people like ourselves that, you know, practice machine learning AI and build tools and solutions around this is the elephant in the room. If remote monitoring generates crap data, we unfortunately waste a lot of time for clinicians and a lot of resources mm. for health systems. And we can look at this from so many different perspectives. And I know there are trials where this works, where you've overtrained your user and users and you've really focused on the one small group where you can get the data collection perfect, but that doesn't scale. Um, so that brings me to point two, which is where a lot of the inconsistencies in the literature lie, scalability. We've, we've never really seen a model of remote monitoring that works in the slums of Mumbai and then the care homes of the UK. Pick those two examples because that's what we are trying to do as a company, mm. but pick very different environments and see, is it possible to have something that, that, that's that scalable? Um, and so going back to the, to the data point, we really need to focus on how does remote monitoring not become an impediment to the health system? How do we not overburden doctors with really noisy data that takes away valuable time? And here for me comes the main gap, which is there isn't really a data refinery in any of the solutions out there that acts as a purification mechanism of all the data can be streamed from remote monitoring tools. And I'm very carefully choosing the word refinery rather than filter, because if we were just filtering out data, we'll pick our you know, really reliable good data points and leave everything noisy behind. But a lot of our really sick patients lie in that noisy bracket. Um, and I can speak with some examples today. So we work in care homes throughout the pandemic with very sick patients that have multiple comorbidities, um, so the, the kind of the uncertainty in the data in, in a data point is really high. It could come from the elderly patient waving their hands around because they're really distressed. It could come from their hands are really cold today because they're elderly. It could come from they're having an exacerbation of a chronic condition, but simultaneously also having an acute episode. There is a lot of uncertainty that is currently absorbed in unreliable data that's then passed on to clinicians, wasting their time and efforts. I can really believe that because when I think back to, which isn't that long ago, you know, that I was anesthetizing people and, you know, visiting people on wards and A&Es and all the rest of it. When an alarm goes off, on a monitor, the, 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 your first impression, you know, there's various, some cases where obviously this is very different, but 
not on the whole, but sometimes or some version of that. Like if an alarm goes off, I'm not that concerned. It's probably just something weird. It's probably just they've taken the pulse socks off their finger or they've, you know, and you'll know this because this is this is the stuff that you've been involved with. It, and it's and it's funny that, as you say, the uncertainty as to the validity of that alarm is extremely high. Yep. But again, yep. that's the 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 problem is then compounded because those are the patient the, the patients where you're most likely to get the uncertain results are the ones you actually need a tight grip on and to know what's coming out of them. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought up this example because going back to the literature this evidence actually goes beyond remote monitoring and goes beyond the different attempts of deploying solutions in community settings or home settings. Even if we stuck with hospitals, like situations where the data capture is fundamental to clinical decision-making, the literature there is really rich. So that what you're describing, for example, is called the smoothing effect that happens in hospitals where machines will generate loads of values and then clinicians or nurses naturally will just choose to ignore some of them often for good reasons, because there is a lot of noise and they're you know, getting agitated for all sorts of reasons, sometimes for not so very good reasons, and that's where error happens and a, a, another very uncomfortable subject to, uh, to cover uh, in these conversations. Mm. But this is where the whole remote monitoring concept for me fails, because if very highly trained professionals in a clinical environment, such as a hospital, cannot guarantee that the quality of that data does not is reliable and does not carry a lot of uncertainty. If they can't do that, why are we assuming that patients in their own homes or non-clinical users like carers in care homes will be able to do much better? It's such a good question because if you looked at the trace of all of those parameters over a 24-hour period you know, it'd look, it'd look frightening. I mean, but as you say, in a clinical environment, you've got the, the art of medicine as well, as well as the, the hard science, right? You've got, you've got the human brain there and, and the eyes and the ears to just be like, oh, well, they were up and eating two minutes ago. So they definitely haven't had a, you know, whatever. like there's so many more elements to the, to the human brain's algorithm when it's defining what intervention is required than, purely the numbers right which which is interesting i suppose my my question would then be how do you as febris then use this information and by that by information i mean you are self-declared as a company as as individuals students of remote monitoring this era where we're trying out different remote monitoring models you as febris have a remote monitoring model to an extent in what you're doing with care homes similar to mumbai and like you are you have been doing this you have been executing this relatively well from what i've seen scaling across east london and all the rest of it but how do you then use this new way of thinking which is that remote monitoring might not be as we think about it now might not be the best way of thinking about things how do you as febris take this forward yeah good question i mean our approach has been one, study the literature, which we talked about extensively. Yeah. Two, 
try the practice, but in an unbiased way, try the practice in the most challenging environments. So don't go to patients that are well convinced of the benefit of remote monitoring and build tools for them, because it will pretty much work for all of them. Mm. But they're a tiny, tiny, tiny subgroup of all the challenges that the health system needs to fix. So our approach has been go to where the challenges are the biggest. Um, And for us, that's been elderly communities in the UK uh, that disproportionately represent the kind of the biggest driver of avoidable hospitalizations, avoidable uh, expenditure to the the NHS. And then in global health scenarios, uh, that's children in urban slums. It doesn't really get much tougher than these two. Uh, both in terms of patient groups as well as just the the circumstances um, of the environments where these patients reside. And we've then taken an approach of really unpicking where this uncertainty happens in the measurements and gradually building up a more and more powerful decision support toolkit that transforms the user in the community into part of this uh, data refinery that I mentioned earlier. So uh, what I mean by this is when, let's say, a carer takes a pulse oximetry measurement, were they in, let's say, a hospital environment, uh, they could either just take one reading and use their clinical judgment to decide, is this a good reading or a bad reading? A carer obviously doesn't have that clinical judgment because they don't have the same level of training. So first step, there needs, we need to remove that level of decision-making. Second step is if they're now collecting, let's say, a continuous measurement with that pulse oximeter, how do we then absorb the analysis of that measurement to identify what are the many things that could go wrong in that process? And using some of the examples I mentioned before, is the patient waving their hands? Are the hands of the patient too, too cold? Are they wearing nail varnish? Like all of these things that a clinician would be thinking about in a hospital environment need to be absorbed by a software system in our, in, in our case, AI powered, so that the carer can focus on the behavioral aspect of what they do, which is tremendously important and totally irreplaceable, i.e. caring for the patient. And the tools that they have at hand, which in our case is a software um, app on a, on a mobile, can absorb all of this decision-making and denoising so that by the end of their experience, they are ideally close to 100% certain that what they've measured is really useful for the doctor that it may or may not be passed on depending on the severity of, of the measurement. So it seems that what you're kind of saying is that when we think about the new paradigm of remote monitoring, it's perhaps not a complete reworking of what we're trying to do. It's just a different emphasis on where we are almost placing our time and effort for R&D and development and perhaps you know building out a different part of it that wasn't necessarily thought about before it's funny because when you talk when you talk about you know the uncertainty of the of the of the readings is high and they're the most like like all of that is so obvious to me when when articulated so well as you have done and and when you talk you know about there needs to be an element of of the purification of the data which is going to end up being the most important again that is extremely obvious to me it just seems that even i have been you know distracted by that kind of uh like i suppose the 
the nirvana of oh you just put something on somebody you get the monitor you get you get the readings and it's interpreted by a system and it's fine and then the action is done and it's you know actionable insights and all the rest of it it's it's it all seems quite clean when when it's thought of like that but it sounds like what you're saying is is a change of emphasis and i suppose is the argument that less people have got that same emphasis is that what you're saying that actually there needs to be a shift towards that across the board when it comes to organizations mm. yeah that's a good way to look at it i think we to some extent have been distracted for all the right reasons because the gaps were most prominent in those domains but we have been distracted by infrastructure yeah um, okay yes a lot of the infrastructural challenges were prohibiting this from really scaling you know the reliability of connectivity in some of these settings uh, which is still there by the way <laughs> um, <laughs> as well as you know the power of mobile phones uh, the availability of point of care set, uh, sensors etc cetera, etc cetera. like all of those infrastructural challenges were there have been worked out throughout time will continue to obviously get better and better but in that, in that kind of improvement cycle, we kind of forgot to step back and look at the bigger picture and see, okay, now that the infrastructure is coming together, are we fulfilling the promise that remote monitoring set out in the beginning? And for me, the answer is no, because the infrastructure is a facilitator, but there is a bigger glaring gap, which is the decision-making and how this wraps around users and the support that people will need regardless of the setting to be able to really implement this in the setting they're in and also more importantly integrate this with their variable levels of health system that, that they have um, so i think it's it's a natural evolution uh, from where we've been but it's time that we refocus and reshift our attention to what's going to make remote monitoring scalable yeah, that's interesting. And your use of we, I think, is interesting there as well, because it seems like you're trying to galvanize, you know, the entrepreneurs, the companies doing it, as well as, I suppose, the, the organizations to place that emphasis um, on, you know, demand and supply side, I suppose. And it sounds like to me that you do, so when we talk about that dichotomy at the beginning, it sounds like you do still believe in the inevitability of this. It's just going to be, as you say, a refocus and and seeing how it works. I mean, if you were to look a year, two years, five years, 10 years into, into the future, how do you see this working? What is the optimal level? What is the, the North Star that we're aiming for here? I would say the inevitability that I believe in and the North Star that uh, I hope we're all aiming for is a community first healthcare approach. Uh, that for me is probably the biggest kind of takeaway from, from the pandemic as well. And practically speaking, what does that mean to you? Practically speaking, for us, that means building up the tools, AI-powered tools that allow non-medical users to detect conditions in the community. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. Remember to subscribe, rate us, and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.